0: Good morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 this morning, uh, picking up right where we left off last week in verse 21. So that's Mark 5:21. Uh, and for those of you who are new or newish to Santa Cruz Baptist Church, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We took a break to go through the book of Colossians. Uh, the thought process was there The the Gospel of Mark presents us with a question, this question, who is Jesus? And we wanted to take a break at the end of Mark chapter 4, when that question is at the forefront of the disciples' minds, to turn to the book of Colossians and to see how Paul answered that question. And he answered in the most unapologetic, most cosmic, biggest possible terms. And so he declared something along the lines of, we could say that he is the God-made man in order to become king. And as we get back into the Gospel of Mark, as we looked at it last week, what we saw is that part of this becoming king, part of this God-becoming man aspect, what we see is his kingly authority confronts all the forces of the world in which we inhabit. Last week, Jesus confronted the forces of spiritual darkness as a man filled with an entire military unit of demons came charging up to him. And as we turn to this week's text, we're going to see him address the forces of actual physical illness, and as well, physical death. Interestingly enough, I think what we get here in this text is not just a big picture of Jesus as a cosmic king but actually something that's both true and the fundamental flip side of the message of the book of Colossians. And that this cosmic big king is also deeply compassionate and concerned about us. And so what we see as we turn to this text is that Christ enters into the stories of two different individuals. And so it would be easy to jump in right away, but let's first pray for our morning, and uh, then we will get into the couple of points I want to see us unpack. So if you would bow with me. Father, as was already read in the book of Isaiah, we ask you to strengthen our weak hands, to make firm our feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come he will come with vengeance with recompense and he will come and save you. Lord, I pray that as we open up this passage in Mark chapter 5 that you ground us in these truths in Isaiah. That you ground us in the truths of forgiveness, of spiritual cleanliness, and of resurrection through faith in our compassionate King Jesus. Place these deep within our hearts that we may have strong hands for the work of faith, that we may have firm knees in a chaotic and anxious age. And so, Lord, I pray for myself this morning and for my sermon that you grant me clarity of thought and clarity of speech as we turn to your word. As we ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, this morning I really only have two points that I want you to see in what's a pretty long text. And I think these points... Uh, for many of you here are going to be things that you've actually experienced in your lives. You see, what we see in this text is the clarity, or the sorry, the clarifying power of suffering and the unexpected power of Jesus. And if you call yourself a Christian today, then you have experienced the latter. And if you've been in this world long enough, you've experienced the former. Because one of the things that seems true for everybody is that we all experience suffering. And all the people who call themselves Christians have experienced the transformative power of Christ. But I also want you to notice a theme, because fundamentally as we look at these two points in this text, we're going to see this theme drawn out, that faith is the key that enables all, whether honored or dishonored, whether clean or unclean, to tap into the merciful power of Jesus. And that will bring both healing and salvation. So let us turn to our text, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd had gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well. And he, speaking of Jesus, went with him, speaking of Jairus. Our text is going to continue on, but I want to stop there for a bit. You see, we're getting into the first of this very human story in which somebody encounters Jesus in which a universal human condition is pointed out, that condition of suffering. And it's intended to draw out our compassion. It helps, by the way, to notice who Jairus is. So if we look at the text, the first thing we see is that he's described as one of the rulers of the synagogue. Commentators say that these were laymen who had particular administrative responsibilities, uh, and that... They gained them essentially by having a big view in terms of the community. So everybody in the community would have looked at him as reputable, as godly, as uh, wise. In other words, this is a position, whether it be given honorarily or officially, it is a position that was bestowed upon those who checked all the hierarchical boxes. That everything that was viewed as the apex of the community, the apex of culture, this guy had to check them all. He would have been financially wealthy, he would have been of the right race or ethnicity, he would have been of the right religious status, he was the right gender, he was all of the right things in order to gain this position. One commentator says that Jairus shows us that ultimately none of that, though, ends up mattering. You see, his prestige and his position, whatever power he had in the community, is useless in the face of suffering. Listen to his words again. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Not she might die, not we're worried about her. She is at the point, the brink, the edge at which you tip from life into death. Jairus' need is so urgent then that he jettisons, he gets rid of everything in his path, every aspect of cultural decorum that would have separated him from what he needs, from the cure for this suffering. And so pride aside, dignity aside, this accolade of the community falls at Jesus' feet and begs. This is where, sometimes, uh, breaking texts up for a sermon series actually does a little bit of a disservice to us. You know, it's important in order to get through all the necessary information in each text because the scriptures are so very deep. But, breaking this apart might mean that we neglect the fact that this is not the first person in recent memory to fall at Jesus' feet begging. You see, he might be a paragon of virtue in the society. He might have all this power and prestige. But ultimately, where this text places Jairus is in the exact same position which last week's text placed a man who is infested with a legion of demons. He is in the same state, the same position, the same deep need. Retired pastor and author Tim Keller says that this would have been a lay president of the synagogue. He would have, therefore, been a man of great devotion to God, of great morality, respectability, wealth, prominence. But here he is desperate because his little girl is as good as dead. So who is Jairus? He, most fundamentally of all, is a man in deep need of divine mercy. And so his story begins, and Jesus starts to follow him. But what we find is immediately his story is interrupted. So back to Mark chapter 5. My little girl is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and, no, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a minute and imagine how this goes. You know, the switch from the Gospel of Mark to the book of Colossians back to the Gospel of Mark can be jarring because what we did is we went from narrative into a text that just explains things clearly and back into narrative. You see, one of the problems with that is a narrative is, going to te- is not going to tell you things. It's going to show you them. So you have to, in a sense, when you're reading a narrative, have in your mind a film running of how this looks, of what takes place. And so you have Jairus on his face before Jesus, and he convinces Jesus to come with him. So he gets up. Now he's anxious. He's in a hurry. His daughter's on the brink of death, so he's trying to move everybody along. He's out in front pushing the crowd out of the way. You have Jesus following, surrounded by his disciples as a sort of entourage. They're all trying to get where they're going. But Jesus feels something and he stops. Jairus probably doesn't realize right away. It's just a simple touch of Jesus' cloak. So he takes a few extra steps. Before he realizes, he turns around, the crowd's closed back in behind him, he has to work his way back to Jesus. You can imagine the desperation. Yet, in the midst of all of that, Jesus has something important he wants to do. It's kind of an odd moment, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the disciples are trying to probably urge Jesus on. Maybe one of them even has his hand on his back. Have you ever seen somebody like escort, escorting somebody important? They've got a hand on the back. They're looking around. They're trying to get him where they're trying to go. You can imagine something like that taking place. And Jesus stops. They apply a little bit of pressure. A, and he points out, somebody touched me. So his disciples, they put it in plural probably to make sure whoever said this gets anonymity. But his disciples said to him, You see the crowd is pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? Quick translation, Jesus, everybody is touching you. (laughs) But Jesus digs in his heel. He wants to see who touched him. So we've looked at Jairus. Let's look at the owner of this hand that grazes his garment. Verses 25 and 26 tell us her story. A woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. The first thing to point out is pretty obvious, but she's a woman. The reason why that's important is that in their society puts her in a second class spot. Now that being said, it would be It would probably be some form of spiritual malpractice for me not to point out that the Bible itself and the Gospel of Mark in particular go to war with the idea that there is any discrepancy, that there is any hierarchy of being in humanity. That being said, everybody in the crowd, Jairus and the twelve disciples included, would have seen her in a second-class status. And so what we have right away is that Jesus stops following a man in order to meet a woman. He is already breaking down stereotypes, boundaries. He's devastating everything that they know and believe culturally at this moment. Second, we see that she had a discharge of blood. I don't mean to get graphic, but this is no mere physical plight. We can look at Leviticus 15 to see what is going on here. Leviticus 15, starting in verse 25, says this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanliness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be unclean, as is, uh, oh, uh, shall, shall be a bed to her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanliness of her menstrual impurity, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening, but if she is cleaned or if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall use one for sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. They really thought of everything in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Several commentators with medical backgrounds speaking about this text in Mark say that such bleeding is likely both a significant medical issue and would have caused physical repercussions for her. So it's probably caused by something bad, and it has negative consequences aside from just the bleeding. Yet, the more important thing in the text is that she would have been seen as unclean. And that gets expanded and heightened in terms of pressure by the fact that Ezekiel 36, 17 takes this exact idea, this exact circumstance, and uses it as a symbol of the people of God's idolatry. Ezekiel 36, 17. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like, the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they defiled it. So then we have to note a second thing about what's taking place here. Jesus stops his service to the ruler of a synagogue, this man who would have been the utmost with maybe the exception of the priesthood for ritualistic and religious cleanliness in order to serve an unclean woman. And by the way, as we get further into her story, did you notice what Leviticus said in terms of how uncleanness can transfer? If she lies on a bed, it becomes unclean. If she sits in a chair, it becomes unclean. You imagine if she leans up against a wall. That part of the wall is probably now unclean. And if somebody touches those things, they become unclean. Might go without saying, but we could take note of the phrase as well, as in her menstrual impurity, which points us back to Leviticus 15.9, which says that if you touch her, you become unclean. So basically, if you touch her or anything she touches, you are now ceremonially unclean, which means you have to go through this long ceremony. You have to wait seven days. You have to sacrifice things in the temple in order for you to enter back into society and right relationship with those in it. What would it be like to be this woman? We don't get an age. We don't get a marital status. We don't get number of kids. We don't get any picture of what her life was like before this happened. But think about it. Maybe she was well-loved. I mean, maybe married, maybe kids. Maybe just close siblings, father and mother. But can you imagine what she feels now? Can you imagine not being able to lay on a bed with your spouse, lest they have to go through a week-long cleansing ritual? Can you imagine not being invited over to somebody's house because you can't touch any of their stuff, lest they become unclean? Or if you invite somebody over for lunch, they. If they are brave enough to enter your home, have that suspicious look like, can I sit on anything, can I touch anything? They just stand in the middle of the room, away from all physical objects. Can you imagine having children and not being able to hold them, lest they become unclean? How long out of curiosity, if you consider yourself a good friend, a good spouse, a good child, a good father, a good mother, how long out of curiosity Would you last before you just simply said, it is too much work to love this woman? How long until the invitations go unanswered? How long until you run out of excuses for reasons you can't spend time together? How strong would your friendship have to be to endure this? Because for her, she's been in this for 12 years. That's college, graduate school, well into your career. That's grade school all the way through high school. 12 years. You know, we live in an individualistic culture. And it's just wracked with loneliness. In 2018, loneliness as a cause of mental illness got so bad that the Atlantic, the Guardian of London, multiple seminaries, about 25 that I'm aware of, psychology or counseling grad schools, held symposiums on their own on loneliness and mental illness. The WHO declared it a world health crisis. But guess what? That happens to us when we live in an individualistic society and culture where you are taught from the youngest age that you survive on your own, that you are to stand on your own merit, that you are to become your own man, your own woman, make a way for yourself. We're the rugged individualists. So take all of the loneliness which you might feel for her right now as we walk through that text, and now put it into a collectivist society, a collectivist culture, where everybody else is held together by tight-knit bonds within the community. And yet you are alone. Twelve years. No wonder she spent everything she had suffered much under many physicians. Why would she do that? Because of 12 years. But was no better, rather she grew worse. So Jesus interrupts his helping of a likely wealthy, likely well-respected member, like uh, a leader in the community to help out an impoverished, friendless reject. This woman is the poster woman for those who are set outside. She is the poster woman for the one who stands apart from the community. She embodies outcast. You notice Mark doesn't even see fit to include her name. Gyrus gets a name because he's known. She doesn't get a name. Mark is drawing a contrast between these two. Mark is saying essentially Jairus and this woman with the hemorrhage could be hardly more different Different. There are different sex, different public recognition, different status, different identification. They approach Jesus differently. They have different expectations. The manner of how Jesus ministers to them is different. Yet, suffering has clarified something. Suffering has revealed that we all exist this woman and this man exist, you and I exist on the same playing field. Yes, Gyrus has had an easier life. Yes, Jairus has experienced probably more prominence, probably more comfort. Things have been easier for him. But fundamentally, when everything else is cleared away and reality is shown for what it is, they stand in the same position. There's a literary device that's often used in Scripture when a group of similar stories is set next to each other, and the idea is it's supposed to draw out the contrast. It's like playing which of these is not like the other. You look for the way in which they're different. I think Mark is couching this story of Jairus in between the story of the demoniac, who is also unnamed, who is a Gentile, thus also unnamed, in between this story of the demoniac and this woman. I think Mark is trying to point out How the heights of suffering and hardship equalize all people. Dustin, our resident medical professional in the room, can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is fairly clear to probably anybody who works in a hospital, who works for the ill, because the word terminal cannot be waved away with a limitless credit card. Inoperable is not something that your prestige your position in society can make not true. And so we realize something important, something is clarified for us in this moment. The power of clarity, the power of suffering to clarify is pretty immense, and it shows us this, that we... We have already said it clarifies that before God, we all exist on the same level, but fundamentally, it clarifies that we are all people in need. We might surround ourselves with things of comfort, safety, security, yet all those things can be ripped away in a moment with a phone call, with a diagnosis, with a letter. They can all be taken away in a heartbeat. And when that sort of suffering comes and it strips us of our illusions of safety... Of security, of control, of self-mastery, of self-importance, what happens is that we see our ultimate need is the same as the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, is the same as the bleeding woman, and is the same that Jairus experiences here. We all need a supernatural encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The demoniac needs Jesus because without him he is trapped in his sins, He's surrounded by death and he is enslaved. But we too were that. Romans 6:20 20 through23. For when you were slaves of sin you, or for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you were now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death versus life, slavery to sin versus slavery to righteousness and to God. The woman needed to encounter Jesus because she was ritually unclean, removed from the people of God, set outside. But we too were in need of that same high priestly ministry of Jesus. Hebrews 9:11 through 14, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered in for once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal, life, or through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We too were ritually unclean. Jairus needs Jesus because, as it turns out, in the face of human mortality, he has nothing to overcome it. Thankfully, one of the most famous, most well-known, most cited passages in scripture, John 3 16 and 17, remind us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jairus' suffering clarifies what is true of all of us, that we are all in need of a supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ. If I might add one more thing to that, it's that suffering clarifies our need for patience. While we are on the subject of Jairus, this encounter is interesting. Timothy Keller says that Jairus and the disciples are saying to Jesus, What are you doing? Don't you understand the situation? Hurry, Jesus, hurry, or it will be too late. The words of Jairus are the words that we all have. I need help from you now, Jesus. I don't need help from you later. Hurry. Jesus will not be hurried, though. And as a result, everyone who has any relationship with Jesus, we often feel like Jairus in this moment. That he's just delaying, irrationally, unconsciously, inordinately, and even wrongly. And I understand this feeling. Anyone who's experienced the waiting has, but there are lessons that we learn in the waiting. Our second point, the unexpected power of encountering Jesus. Think again about this woman. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Do you notice the faith of this woman? Twelve years of suffering, spent everything she's had on the medical practices of the day. Nothing has worked, but if I touch his garment, I will be made well. Still she has faith. She expected, though an anonymous touch, the healing power somehow to come into her. She's associated in her mind the touch with the healing. And she thinks that Jesus will just move on. But Jesus stops because he breaks her expectations in order to make something crystal clear. There's something actually more important and more fundamental to Jesus than simply healing this woman. And so he interrupts his journey to a dying girl to do this. You can think about the woman for a moment. One commentator says, if she would admit to being healed, she would have had to acknowledge that she had compromised the religious purity of Jesus and everyone in the crowd. The woman likely feared reprisal for violating religious law. She may also have been afraid because she has just experienced divine power without permission and without the proper status and is concerned about how Jesus will respond. When Jesus stops and says, who touched me, immense fear comes into the heart of this woman. That's what I want you to realize. So why does Jesus seek her out? Why not just simply pass by, maybe... Make eye contact and kind of give a nod or even a a wink to let her know, like, hey, I see you. What is Jesus doing here? Eventually, though, she feels she can't hide. So verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell before him and told the whole truth. The whole truth in front of a crowd. The whole truth in front of a local synagogue leader. The whole truth in front of Jesus. Remember Leviticus. That is not a truth that is easy to tell. She just risked making everyone in that crowd unclean. But notice what Jesus does. In a minute, he mitigates any negative response, any reprisal. And he clarifies the true source of her healing. Daughter... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. You know, I said that we can see that this woman is a woman of great faith, given what she believes about what Jesus can do. But it is possible that her faith is misplaced. Her faith is in the touch of the garment. She's superstitious. And that's wrongheaded. Jesus sees... That it is vital to both her and to the crowd and by proxy to us as the readers that he clarify that healing and especially ultimate healing come not in touch, not in superstition, but in faith in Christ alone. This is true of the immediate resolution of a chronic 12 year bleeding, but is also true of what we reflected on that we are all, because of our sin and because of our ritual uncleanliness, and, and because ultimately that we live in bodies which will die. Because of those things, we are also unclean. And this is the cause and key to that as well that faith in Christ is the only thing that solves those. And so he restores her. He speaks to her in front of the hometown crowd and he calls her daughter family language. This takes place in Capernaum. That's not where Jesus was born, but that's where basically his entire ministry takes place from, which means all these people who gathered around him weren't just gathering around to see like the fancy teacher or the lo- they were gathering around to see their local celebrity. The guy they believed in. So when he says, daughter, what he is doing is he is yoking his reputation to hers. If you doubt this cleansing, if you doubt this healing, that is the same as doubting who Jesus is. Daughter, your faith has made you well. If you believe in me, in other words, then believe that she is restored physically and socially. The social aspect of this is really important because this is one of the beautiful things about church history. It is stories like this in which church history has pointed to to show that all are welcome in a church. Whenever we fail to welcome people into our church, unless it is under the reason of protecting the congregation from some nefarious evil or force, unless it's from that particular position, A lack of welcoming strikes a dissonant chord with this text. It is out of harmony. It does not fit. It runs in contrast. As one scholar notes, why does Jesus call attention to her? Why does he call attention to what she has done? Why would he risk her public embarrassment? The public embarrassment caused by singling her out signifies his individual care for her. He, would, he will not allow her to slip away into the crowd and remain anonymous. He forces the issue so that she leaves healed. She will leave knowing that the one who heals her cares for her. She is a person worth Jesus' time. Unless we think that Jairus, in the midst of all of this, gets the short end of the stick. Let's see what he gets that's unexpected. When it comes to Jairus, he enters the story with already very, very small hope. And that hope, what's left of it, is crushed while Jesus is addressing this woman. Verse 35, While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Yet, in a comment that almost seems hard to even understand how you would take it in this particular scenario, we get, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He's going to double down on this comment when he gets to Jairus' house. Verse 37, And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Their response is one of derision and mockery. So they are put out of the house. If you're going to make fun of Jesus, you don't get to see it. (laughs) And in something that even if you know what you're waiting for, even if it was expected, would have blown every category that these people had. Verse 41. Taking her, speaking of the little girl, by the hand, he said, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Mark includes that little coincidence. 12 years of bleeding, 12-year-old girl. Odds of those two things being true on accident, probably pretty small. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the unexpected power of resurrection. but I think we might miss what's happening here. You see, it's obviously pretty cool that Jesus resurrected this little girl, but if we end with just this story, because they fade out of the story and Jesus moves on, we miss something. That woman was bleeding for 12 years. That's called chronic. This girl was on the brink of death that, Dustin can correct my medical terminology, but that would be something classified as probably acute. Uh, These are two very different things. A chronic problem means that this has been going on for a long time and probably will continue to go on. So it's a very sad thing, but she's been bleeding for 12 years. She could probably wait two more hours. This little girl, though, has an acute problem. She will die unless something happens. Quickly, yet Jesus chooses to stop and talk with this woman. This makes absolutely no sense. It's almost irrational. In fact, it's worse than irrational. It's probably malpractice. If you listen to emergency room doctors who had seen a woman like this coming with a chronic problem, they would have waited and gone to see the girl with the acute problem. If they treat the chronic woman, the acute problem dies. Yet that's exactly what Jesus does. I think that's because Jesus wants to make sure that Jairus understands something really important and highly unexpected. And so he wants to challenge the small nature of Jairus's understanding of his daughter's health and importance. You see, often, when we get into situations like Jairus, our problem is that our view of God is too small. It's too, too small to save that person, physically or spiritually. Too small to alleviate to, or to work on the suffering which I currently experience. We are riddled with views of God that are too small. A.W. Tozer A pastor and theologian once wrote in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought about all of our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way towards curing them. Get this, it is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Jesus wants to help Jairus but he wants to push Jairus to think beyond his present point into the grounds of not just this life, but the next. Jesus is trying to send a signal that it's about more than health. It's about resurrection. You see, what if Jesus had gone past the chronic woman and had gone straight to the girl and healed her? Is she still walking around today? This little girl dies again. Unless there's some eternal little girl wandering around in Israel that the news hasn't gotten to yet. She is in a grave somewhere. This story actually strikes me as pretty similar from another story in the Gospels. This one in the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 11. And Jesus receives word from two of his closest friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother, another good friend of Jesus is in a similar position acute illness on his deathbed please jesus come quickly John 11:6 records what happens so when he heard that lazarus was ill he stayed 2 days longer in the place where he was he stays he delays puts off is this mere procrastination when he finally goes to Lazarus, he's already dead. Not only is he already dead, he's been dead for three days. But Jesus delayed there for the same reason he delays here. He wants to push our accurate and orthodox theology into the realm of lived experience. Listen to this exchange that he has with one of Lazarus' sisters. John eleven twenty three. 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. If you know the story of Lazarus, Jesus walks to the grave and calls him out, not only of the grave, but of the clutches of death itself. He wanted the orthodox theology to be pushed into the realm of lived experience such that Martha, who knew that Lazarus would be resurrected, had to come to terms that that was gonna happen in an unexpected way, because the resurrection and the life was standing in front of her. And similarly here, you have a synagogue ruler who likely believes in the resurrection. Yet he's not going to trouble the teacher anymore because the daughter's already dead. The resurrection and the life is right in front of him as well. And so Jesus reaches out his hand and he lifts up the daughter and both stories show us that Jesus is delayed and allows the illness in order to to prevail to death in order that he can show the unexpected power that he brings eternal life. And let me be clear about this. That's not eternal life in terms of like merely going to heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus, a believer in the message of the gospel, you have eternal life now. For you have trusted, for you who have trusted Jesus for salvation, death has been transformed from the greatest enemy to merely the veil which you pass through, the waiting room for Jesus' full and realized kingdom. You see Ephesians 2 says this about us, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived following the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the best of mankind. Notice the use of tenses there. You were dead. You once walked. You or we all once lived. We were by nature children of wrath. Each is formed in a grammatical structure that says that these things are no longer true. So what's, what is true? The pivot of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works that none may boast. The transition phrase, but God, changes everything so that we have been made alive with Christ, that we have been raised up with him, that he has seated us with him, all formed in a grammatical structure, which indicates a completed action with ongoing consequences. So one last time, how do we access this? Look at the words of Jesus to Jairus, Do not fear, only believe. We might fill this out by saying, Believe what you have heard, about Jesus. Believe what you hear about him from the scriptures. Because faith enables all, honored and dishonored, clean and unclean, to tap into the merciful power of Jesus that brings both healing and salvation. Would you pray with me?